So went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named the place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I might find favour in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, If Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother, Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wretched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. 
So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts uh, to behold wonderful things in your word, for we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it's uh, great to know, great to hear uh, Julian's uh, testimony, the account of God's great gospel work in his life, uh, and it was so encouraging as well to hear that I'd had an impact uh, and to hear him quote uh, Les Mis. Uh, I just thought, wow, it's... What a precious thing to know that somebody else will quote lame is as well. Uh, which is a great segue, actually, into this morning's sermon, because lame is a great story of redemption. And I think, uh, as people, we love to uh, watch stories, hear stories, uh, to read books uh, about redemption and transformation. And lame is is one of those stories. Uh, that quote uh, that Julian read, I feel my shame inside me like a knife, is uh, from Jean Valjean. He's a man who was a crook. Uh, he was a criminal. He was arrested. He was thrown in, uh, in as, a, as a galley slave uh, in the French uh, prisons because of stealing a loaf of bread, but he got his pardon. He went out and his life was transformed by a moment uh, where he met a Catholic uh, priest. His life was transformed uh, and he begins a new life later on and he becomes the mayor of the town uh, and a very respectable gentleman. Uh, And he discovers that another fellow who looks almost the same as him is on trial somewhere else in France Uh, for having broken parole. He's on trial for Jean Valjean's crime. And that quote that Julian had is is from a scene in the the musical, the book, where Jean Valjean is wrestling with himself. What will I do? What kind of person am I? Am I the kind of person who will grasp on to this new life that I have as a mayor, uh, as a man of respect? Will I hang on to that life? And let this man suffer the fate that I deserve, go to prison in my place, or will I own up, lose everything that I have, go to that court and say, I'm prisoner 24601. What will he do? And the remarkable thing is that Jean Valjean is such a changed man that he goes to that court and he offers himself. He was a criminal, but he's he's been transformed by his experiences, by the things that God had been doing in his life uh, through people like that priest. We love stories of redemption and transformation. Lamez is one of the greatest stories of redemption and transformation ever penned. But there are other stories of transformation and change that we love as well. The ugly duckling story, the ugly duckling plot undergirds almost every single teen drama ever written, ever made. Uh, You know the one, it's the guy or girl in in the high school with the notoriously bad hair uh, and wearing glasses 
Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, they're transformed into being the most beautiful person uh, in, in the whole school. And their life is transformed and changed. Well, the story of Jacob too is a story of transformation and redemption. But Jacob isn't redeemed uh, by a court case, like Jean Valjean, or by a talented hairdresser, but he's transformed by God. And here in chapter 32, if you like, that chapter that we read before, it's the culmination, the pinnacle, almost, of God's great and persistent work of grace in seeking and redeeming Jacob. So what's going on? Well, Jacob, uh, in chapter 32, is heading back to meet his brother Esau. If you're not familiar with the story, 20 years ago, Jacob had run away from Esau. He cheated his brother, he diddled him, he'd uh, stolen the blessing, the inheritance that belonged to Esau. And so Esau had threatened to, to kill him, to kill his own brother. And here in chapter 32, uh, Jacob is, is going back. 20 years later, he's going back to meet Esau again. Because of the sensitivity of the whole situation, Jacob sends messages on ahead, in, uh, 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 ahead of him to let Esau know that he's coming. Uh, when those messengers report back, Jacob doesn't know what to think. He hears that Esau is coming out with 400 men to greet him. And Jacob's thinking to himself, what kind of welcoming party is that? <laughs> is he coming out as a friend? You know, 400 friends, come along with me and meet my brother. Or is he coming out with a war party? <laughs> come along and let's put my brother to death. Jacob doesn't know what to think. He's terrified. And so he does something that we've never seen him do before in all the chapters of Genesis that we have talking about Jacob's life. J Jacob never does the one thing that he does here. He prays. He prays to God. In verse 9 we're told, Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Jacob says to God, you told me to go back, God, and he's coming out with 400 men. What's going on? You've got to save me. This is the first time that we've ever seen that Jacob prays to God. He's a different man to what he was. In the past, he always took things into his own hands. But now he prays. He still has a plan, but his plan is bathed in prayer. And that plan is uh, what takes up the, the, the second half of that first section uh, of uh, chapter 32. Jacob uh, not only prays, he does something else quite unusual in his plan. He tries to make peace. So from 13 chapter, uh, verses 13 to 21, we're told about Jacob's complicated scheme for making his relationship with Esau right again. 
Jacob takes hundreds of goats and rams and camels and bulls and donkeys and he sends them off with his servants in advance of him. And when these servants meet Esau, they're to say uh, something in verse 18, we're told, they're to tell Esau, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau and he is coming behind, uh, behind us. Not only is Jacob sending gifts to Esau, the brother that he'd robbed in the past, Jacob's now saying that he's Esau's servant. They belong to your servant Esau, uh, to your servant Jacob, the servants are to say. If that wasn't enough to draw out the effect of this whole thing, Jacob puts the animals and the servants in groups. Esau will meet one group and then a bit later on Esau will meet another group and then a little bit later on he'll meet another group again and on and on it goes. It's kind of the gift that keeps on giving and Jacob's hope is that, that uh, Esau will see the first gift and go, well, that nasty brother of mine, uh, but he's being a bit generous and then the next time he'll get a, another gift and he'll go, well, maybe it's not as bad as I thought, you know. Maybe, uh, maybe time's changed him. And then the third gift comes along and he goes, well, you know, we always did get on well as, as kids, didn't we? Uh, you know, and, and so by the time Jacob finally arrives, they'll embrace and they'll be best friends. Jacob is laying it on pretty thick. But I don't think we should be cynical about his purpose here. I think what he's doing here is noble and actually right. He's showing himself to be the man changed by those 20 years in the wilderness with God. We're told in verse 20 what Jacob's motivation was. He thought to himself, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. Pacify seems to imply that Jacob is just aiming to calm Esau down, as though he just wants to kind of ingratiate himself with Esau again. But the underlying thought there is not actually appeasement, but the underlying uh, word and thought there is actually... Uh, restitution and reconciliation. Jacob is seeking to make the relationship right. He's seeking to make right the way that he had treated Esau in the past. When Jacob had left Esau before, Jacob was a scoundrel. He was a man who connived and, and, and used trickery to cause division. Now Jacob is returning not as a conniver, but as a peacemaker. He's a man transformed by his encounter with God, a man transformed by those 20 years of training in the wilderness. God had showed Jacob mercy, though he didn't deserve it. God had gone out of his way to make Jacob right. And now Jacob was going out of his way to make things right with Esau. It can be easy, I think, for us to just let things go. I think for many of us coming back from 20 years in the wilderness, we just go, well, time heals all wounds, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's important, as Jacob demonstrates, it's important to make the effort to make things right. We can't make things right with God, only Jesus can do that, but we can often make things right with people. Not always. You can't uncommit adultery, you can't bring back a person who's died after a terrible accident or murder. But where possible and where we're able, we should seek to make restitution. We should seek to make peace. Dave MacDonald, uh, who was the speaker at our 
recent men's convention talked a little bit about that. I thought very helpfully. He, he said, maybe there's someone that you know that when you, you, you know you just don't get on well with them. Uh, and when you see them, you avoid them. You don't want to talk to them. Uh, and when you see them, you move to the other side of the room. He said rightly that if that's the case, it's an opportunity for humility. It's an opportunity for making peace, for setting things right. It's an opportunity to say, is there something that I can do to heal this breach? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. That is, people who know God, who've been changed by God, are people who make peace who seek to restore what is broken and to reconcile with enemies. And that's the kind of person that Jacob shows that he is, coming back from those 20 years of training in the wilderness. Well, Jacob shows he's a changed man. Uh, He's been transformed from a a cheat and a liar into a man who makes peace and heals wounds. But although he's changed a lot... God still hasn't finished with him. He's still not perfect. Uh, His transformation is not as complete as it could be. And we see that clearly in the second half of this chapter, uh, in the strange events of Jacob wrestling with the man through the night. In verse 22 and following, we uh, we find out about that. Jacob sends his family on ahead of him, and he's left alone. And during the night on his own, uh, a man comes and pounces on Jacob and wrestles with him. The word for wrestling here bears a remarkable similarity to, uh, to Jacob's name. Uh, Jacob, you might remember, means heel grasper. This man is grasping on to Jacob like Jacob grasps on to other people. This man, Jacob's Jacob, at the Jabbok. There's a whole kind of literary kind of crazy things going on there. And as usual, Jacob, being the wrestler, is determined to win. (laughs) You're not going to beat me. And so he struggles through the night uh, with this man. But who is it that Jacob thinks he's wrestling with? It seems like Jacob's first thought must have been that this was Esau. In the last chapter, we we heard about that prayer that Jacob prayed where he said, God, I'm afraid that Esau is going to come and attack me. And he's waiting to cross the river, he's spending the night by himself, and all of a sudden someone jumps out of the dark and pounces on him. Who's he going to think that it is? I think it seems likely that Jacob, when Jacob says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. I think the person that Jacob thinks he's wrestling with is Esau. He still thinks he's fighting Esau for the blessing. Whoops. (laughs) He's not quite as changed as we think he is, is he? Old habits die hard. And in the heat of battle, the real Jacob comes out. He's come a long way, but there's still a long way to go. He still thinks he's fighting people for the, for the blessing. Jacob's story has been all about the blessing. 
about his struggle to get the blessing for himself, about coaxing Esau into selling him the, the blessing for a bowl of soup, about stealing the blessing by dressing up as his older brother. But when the assailant asks Jacob for his name, it becomes clear that this attacker is unknown to Jacob. The stranger asks, what's your name? But Jacob's answer is more than just a statement about what his name is. It's a description of his character. What's your name? Jacob, he'll grab a cheat. That's who I am. And this figure says to him, well, now I'm telling you your name is Israel, which means he wrestles with God. Your name is Israel because you've wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. In one sense, it doesn't really matter who Jacob thinks he's wrestling with. It could have been Esau, it could have been one of Esau's men, it could have been some complete stranger. The key point is that he thinks he's wrestling with a man, but it turns out that he's wrestling with God. Jacob has spent his life fighting with Esau, fighting with Laban, fighting with his two wives, but the person that he was really struggling against was God. It's like... You know, in the kind of the James Bond film, that moment where there's the, the struggle with the masked assassin. Uh, and they're struggling and they're fighting, and all of a sudden, in the heat of the battle, the mask gets ripped off. And it turns out it's the long lost friend, or the beautiful woman, or whoever it is. It's like, and everyone goes, ah! That's what happens to Jacob here at this river. He's wrestling with this man and all of a sudden the mask is ripped off. And who is it that he's wrestling with? It's God. All this time, it hasn't been people. All his life, it's been God. This episode at the Jabbok River is not a moment of transformation. It's a moment of revelation. Jacob finally realizes the truth of his life. Israel becomes a name not of privilege, but, an, but a kind of a name describing the problem. It becomes the, names that, the name that God's people would take on. What kind of people were God's people? They were people who fought with God, who struggled against God. God said, you will be my people, and they went off and did something else. They were people who were fighting each other, fighting God, uh, like Jacob was. Well, what a revelation that was for Jacob. But Jacob's nighttime revelation is an unmasking, I think, of our own lives too. All of us are like Jacob. We're locked in a battle. But we're not locked in a battle against other people. We're locked in a battle against God. We're struggling in the dark with different people in different situations, but the people that we're really fight, the, the person that we're really fighting against is God. Our sins are not just offenses against other people. They're ultimately sins against the holy God who made our world and rules our world and owns our world and owns us and owns other people. Owns the other people that we hurt and cheat. When we steal from others, the person that we're really stealing from is God, who's given that gift to that person. When we destroy our marriage, the relationship that we're ultimately destroying is the relationship with God, who gave us the marriage. 
when we hate people, the person that we're ultimately hating is God, the person who made that person in his own image. When we fight to control our own lives, the person that we're fighting against is not ourselves or others, but God. When people in the world starve because of corrupt governments, the greatest sin of the government is against God, who's given them authority to rule. I don't mean that all that I don't mean that other people are not hurt by our sins or devastated by the things that we do. They are. But it's not one or the other, do you see? It's not that only people are hurt or only God is hurt. The point is that, like Jacob, we're prone to analyse our situation only in interpersonal terms and fail to see that the wrestling match that we're engaged in is with God. Our sin against one person pales in comparison to our lifetime of struggle against God. But Jacob is not only surprised at the end of the chapter to discover that he's been wrestling with God this whole time and not realised it, he's also surprised to discover that he survived the encounter. Jacob realises the enormity of what's taken place in verse 30. He says, I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. Jacob fights God and escapes with his life. Israel, you see, doesn't simply mean he fought with God. But as God says, Israel means here he fought with God and prevailed, or he fought with God and succeeded. He fought with God and survived. Jacob escaped this encounter not because he was clever, not because he was strong, but only because of God's grace. How can you fight with God and succeed? How do you fight with the God of heaven and earth and win? How do you fight with the God of heaven and earth and come away with your life? That, friends, is the staggering irony of the cross, isn't it? 1,500 years after Jacob fought with God, our fight with God reached its climax. 1,500 years after Jacob fought with God, Jesus came, the Son of God, and we as human beings put him to death. It was a moment that summed up the entire course of human history, our fight with God. We put the Son of God to death on the cross. But Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just the moment that epitomised our rebellion against God. It wasn't just the greatest act of human disobedience ever. It was also the greatest act of human obedience. Jesus was the one person who ever lived who didn't struggle against God, who didn't fight, who didn't say, well, God, I know you want me to go that way, but I think I'm going to do this instead. I think that will work better. Jesus went to the cross willingly. He always obeyed, always loved, always trusted. And on that cross, in that moment, God did something utterly unthinkable. All our disobedience was put on Jesus 
and all, all his obedience was put on us. He suffered for our fight with God and we gained all the blessing of his obedience to God. How do you fight with God and win? How do you fight with God and come out with your life? The cross, that's how. By trusting in Jesus who died in our place. Jacob didn't win this fight with God by rest, didn't win the blessing from God by kind of wresting it out of his hands. Jacob gained the blessing because of God's grace and God's kindness and God's faithfulness and God's love. We don't win the blessing from God by being great people, by resting out of God's hand. We're lucky to get it. We're lucky to get away with our lives. We get it not because we're strong and great fighters. We get it because of God's unbelievable grace. It's all by grace so that no one can boast, says Paul. As we'll sing a a little bit later, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. We don't come with anything that could help us to win the fight. All we can do is cling to the cross where the grace and love of God has most powerfully and comprehensively rescued us from our sins against God. Well, Jacob's a new man. He's a man changed by 20 years of training in the wilderness, but he's a far from perfect man. Yet he's also a man with a new name, a name which calls out his wrong approach to life, uh, fighting with God rather than trusting God, but also a name that reminds him of God's extravagant grace. He's fought with God and he's succeeded. He has a new character, he has a new name, but he also has, last of all, he has a new limp. As the passage ends, Jacob hobbles off into the distance. He lives the rest of his life crippled. We're told in verse 31, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. Jacob doesn't come out of this wrestling match completely unscathed. Jacob won't let this man go, but the time comes when God has had enough and all God has to do to finish the fight is to touch Jacob's hip and it's wrenched out of its socket. This fight might have gone on for a long time, but not because Jacob was closely matched in strength with God and God's thinking, oh crumbs, am I going to get out of this? No, all it takes for God to win is a touch and it's over. Jacob's dodgy hip is a permanent reminder that though he succeeded, he did not succeed because of his strength but because of God's power and grace. It's a permanent reminder of his weakness and God's strength. All the way through his life, Jacob has had great plans, but none of his success came through his own power. It was God who promised him the blessing before he was born. It wasn't Jacob's trickery that won it. It was God who met Jacob at Bethel, 
Not Jacob who came looking for God. In the 20 years in the wilderness working for his father-in-law Laban, it wasn't Jacob who brought the success, the multiplication of his flocks. It was God. And returning to face Esau, it wasn't Jacob who would make things right. It would be God who would do that. Jacob's limp is a permanent reminder of his weakness and God's power. It's like Paul's thorn in the flesh to remind him not to become conceited, to remind him that God's power is made perfect in weakness. I think if we went around the room this morning, most of us would have a limp that we could speak about. Depression? Chronic fatigue? Migraines? The sadness of a lost loved one? Crippling pain? The scars of sexual abuse? The scars of a failed marriage? Not to mention the little everyday limps that we face and struggle through. The disappointments, the failed plans, the missed opportunities, being cheated by someone in something. I listened to a talk this week by uh, my mentor in ministry uh, and he was talking about his 10-year struggle with depression. He's quite open about it. 10 years trying to pastor a church crippled by depression. Wow, (laughs) that was an eye-opener. But what was so helpful was that he said that he no longer thinks of those 10 years of depression as a breakdown but as a breakthrough. God needed to take him apart in order to put him back together again. To put him back together the right way. To put him back together a better way. Well, what a difficult but important lesson to learn. To learn our own weakness. And God's powerful strength. You see, it's a great kindness of God to make us limp through life. Because if we didn't, we might forget God and we might walk away. But God in his kindness brings those things upon us, not out of malice or enmity, but out of love out of deep compassion so that like Jacob we would walk through the rest of our life remembering I escaped with my life but not because of my prowess and not because of my power but because of the grace and the love and the kindness of God. In his love God makes us limp through life so that we would never forget the cross where we meet the love and the mercy of God. Jacob is a changed man, but he's not a perfect man. He's a man with a limp, so that he'd always be a man who remembers God. Let's pray.
Lord God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would always enable us to remember you. Oh Lord, let us never forget that it's your power and might, your love and compassion, your grace and mercy, which allows us to fight you, to sin against you, to dishonour you, and escape with our lives. Lord, thank you for your incredible mercy that in Jesus Christ we can find the forgiveness, the reconciliation, so that we can be reconciled to you and live. And Father, as you bring on us afflictions like you did on Jacob, weakness, you cause us to limp. Father, help us not to despair uh, or to turn away from you, but Lord, help us to remember your grace and love uh, and compassion in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that uh, none of us would ever forget, none of us would ever let go uh, of, of clinging on to the cross of Jesus Christ, our great and precious Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen.